We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the news, Zoom Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. Only 10 days until Christmas and Santa's on his way. Now get your hands off the shortbread. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Thanks, Dave Woodward. Uh, Dave Woodard for that in the newsroom. Uh, you know, we are at the uh, within the 12 days of Christmas, 10 as of now. It's sneaking up on all of us, I think. So uh, we're in, we're committed uh, all the way through uh, a top hour Christmas song. And, and, and not necessarily uh, Elton John or Paul McCartney's Happy Christmas Time or, you know, those ones. Oh, everyone's favorite. Simply <laughs> That's what I'm loving about uh, uh, you guys and, and, and Dave and Will and Diane. You guys are like digging down. You're finding something that's there that's, you know, we haven't heard before. Or haven't heard in a long time. And uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. The gang's all here. All right. Don't forget the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign, 900CHML.com. For all the details on how you can help us help the kids, uh, you can text the word donate to 3033. Uh, you can use various means of uh, paying through uh, the internet and such off the website at 900chml.com. Of course, you can always drop off toys. And uh, we thank everybody who participated yesterday in the Pioneer 3 Cent a Liter Day uh, throughout the area. And uh, still tallying that up, but we'll let you know how much money we hauled in uh, yesterday as well. And we've still got 10 more days, so feel free to help us help the kids at 900chml.com. All right, it is an ugly day out there. There's just no other way to describe it. Uh, And depending upon where you are at this end of the lake or down the other end of the lake or up a little farther north, it's anywhere from rain to freezing rain to snow. I mean, did you see the shots of uh, the Garden City Skyway earlier today? Um, It's just unbelievable uh, with the just complete icy conditions they have had down there as well. And there's a shot that, you know, a truck, like a transport truck, who was obviously heading down the backside of of uh, of the hill and their vehicle just started sliding so they literally locked it up and and it's sitting was sitting halfway uh on the skyway uh, slope hill and you could see it just very 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 slowly just going sideways down the hill that was my uh, favorite scene in pl- planes trains and automobiles <laughs> It's always the humorous side to it, isn't there? Uh, but yeah, drive with care out there. And again, uh, you know, it may not be snow or freezing rain where you are, uh, in most of the areas around this end of the lake. It's pretty much just rain, but it turns, uh, very, very quickly depending on where you are because the temperature is sitting around zero, one or two degrees. Now, that being said, the forecast as we go through the afternoon, uh, it just keeps rolling into, uh, great old rain. So there you go. All right. Uh, the other big story of the day is, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore. Ontario's top doc has said that uh, he believes the the seasonal flu and the issues uh, with the respiratory illness have peaked in Ontario. Uh, said this uh, that uh, they've sort of hit the the apex of this in in recent days, and the number of people testing positive for influenza decreased last week up 
uh, uh, to December 10th, and test positivity, uh, positivity has also gone, gone down. So again, these things, we're, we're still ahead of the holidays, but uh, it appears at this point that it is coming to a peak, and uh, and, and that is good news. Uh, respiratory illness is obviously overwhelming children's hospitals uh, just across the country in the last little wi- uh, bit with people having to call off surgeries and so on and so forth. Provincial data shows there has been a sharp decline in emergency room uh, visits across the province for children with the respiratory illness. So, uh, again, that is good news that uh, uh, hopefully if this keeps going, uh, it, it looks like we're on the downside of this. He said uh, he expects a sharp decrease uh, for the flu to continue if it behaves like it did in Australia and in the southern hemisphere in their winters, which, of course, were six months behind them. So usually uh, what they get is a good indicator of what we're going to get, which is, again, um, as far as where we are, uh, it, it, it was predicted. We have to remember that. We just perhaps weren't prepared for it. All right, so I'm going to play you a couple of clips. This is Dr. Kieran Moore uh, talking about the flu, hopefully at its peak. There is some good news, and I know I know our health system is working day in, day out to provide care to Ontarians, but from my vantage point, looking at data at a population level in Ontario, some of the trends are heading in a better direction. And, and I do think that there, there, there may be less pressure on the acute care sector in the coming days. Uh, and the key there is the trends. Uh, here's another clip of Dr. Moore. The trends seem to be improving. That should, if it follows the normal pattern, winter pattern uh, that we saw occur in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere this year, continue to make uh, that disease burden less of a risk uh, for Ontarians and Canadians. All right, so Dr. Kieran Moore saying uh, good news is uh, we seem to have peaked. And again, with uh, heading into the holiday season, a reminder to just uh, be cautious, be aware, and uh, do what you think you need to do. And, of course, always encouraging those to get the flu shot, get their vaccines uh, updated. All right, uh, we're watching a lot of uh, political volleyball going on when it comes to uh, health care. And uh, as we know, the provinces have been... Um, uh, you know, teaming up, getting together, trying to way back when at the beginning of all this with BC Premier Horgan uh, during the global pandemic, trying to get the premiers on the same page and, and a meeting with uh, with the prime minister and such. And, and now this just goes back and forth, back and forth. Uh, at least now it's made it to uh, the federal level and the federal politicians are talking about it, whether it's Christia Freeland, whether it's Jagmeet Singh uh, or even the prime minister. And uh, yesterday, the health minister, federal health minister said the ball is in the province's court. The prime minister said um, provinces must commit to health care reforms. And and I think everybody uh, has finally arrived at that opinion. But who comes up with those health care reforms? How do we come up with those health care reforms? Let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you are, too. So, Peter, how come, you know, people, uh, you know, uh, politicians just don't want to grab this by the horns and just say, hey, I'm the one that at least tried to come up with something and change it or fix it or come up with a new template or what have you? I mean, we talk about dental care. We talk about uh, uh, pharma care or even daycare. Those are all provincial jurisdictions as well and something that the federal government is always jumping into of late. Why, why can't we meet at the table and talk about what those reforms are. What's the issue here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we do see the provinces uh, get together and they got together with Duclos. I mean, that was the, kind of the, the the news today with the federal minister saying that last month when they met, they actually uh, agreed on the major changes that have to happen in the healthcare system. And, and that's really not surprising because, you know, in every province, the healthcare ministry is pretty much the biggest ministry and they're following you know, what uh, the good practice is, is globally, and uh, they can figure out what they need to do, but they get together and say, yeah, maybe we should move forward to, together on this. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the real issue here is that the provinces want the money from the federal government, but the federal government isn't really that motivated to, uh, you know, get all the bad press for taxing us, only to give the money to the provinces. So they want to be able to say we got something for it. They want their little piece of kind of glory in this that they can and used to to convince us and and that is i think where duclos is going is trying to get the provinces to say yeah if you, if you give us this money we're going to spend it on on these particular uh, priorities and we're going to uh, produce reports for the canadian public showing how we use that money uh, to improve our health system in these ways and the one thing that the health minister is talking about is a data system, which, again, lots of people uh, agree that that's what we need, a data bank that goes right the way across the country but and something there that the feds can hang their hat on. But, you know, uh, just fixing it, isn't that something you can hang your hat on as opposed to the data thing? And again, I'm not against the data project, but it's one of many that obviously uh, uh, we have to get involved in. Uh, we're talking about not throwing more money off, after something, but reform, making reform changes so who decides what that is isn't that something that they should all decide together or is it something that the provinces should decide and and again if that's the case then really the federal government just writes the check or does it does do the feds uh, make that decision because what it's looking at like now is that you know the, the premiers are trying to have that discussion about what those reforms are yeah, I mean, and I think the federal government has really limited levers for affecting these provincial healthcare systems because it's you know pretty complex provincial health bureaucracies that are that are running these things, and you know it's uh, you know for the federal government to come in and say okay you know here's the uh, you know the specific data system you need to use, and you know here's how we're going to make you use it, it you know really doesn't make sense, and I mean and the provinces. Likewise, come out and say well you know the federal government you've got responsibility for healthcare on indigenous. Uh, you know, on indigenous reserves in this country, and you're not doing such a great job yourself. So, yeah, I mean, it does come down to the provinces. And, uh, you know, part of the the issue, I think, is that each province has its own way of trying to solve its particular issues. And, you know, maybe one of the roles for the federal government is to try and find ways to get the provinces uh, talking to each other and sharing information with each other so that uh, you know, there are ways for the provinces to adopt similar solutions, you know, and maybe learn from one another and not have to reinvent everything from scratch. But, uh, you know, again, for the federal government mostly is just kind of dropping in at periods where, you know, they're being asked for money and they want to get something back for their money. I don't think they've really been uh, very close players with what's been happening in the different provincial uh, health bureaucracies on, on reforming the healthcare system. Yet again, as I mentioned, will take an, an active role when it comes to something like a dental plan or or, or what have you. So um, uh, again, isn't there merit in in trying to fix this? Even just to go in and say, okay, here's what I think or what we think you should do, and then within your provinces adapt that da 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 da. And I know it's a much more complex system than that, and each province does have their own sort of thing going on, which has only made this more complex 
convoluted over time. But but again, it, it's just this is look this looks like a party looking for a leader. This is like a ship looking for a captain here. Well, you know, I, I guess if you've been like trying to fix something for a long time, and then your neighbor comes over uh, and begins providing advice that is really not that uh, helpful because they're you know asking you to do things that you already tried you know two days ago and they didn't right. Uh, you're like, well, you know, really, what do you know about this? And I think that's a bit the <laughs> the uh, position of the provinces, you know, in this um, that uh, you know really they run these systems in all their complexity and they have a pretty strong idea of of what's working and what's not working. So, for a federal government to come in and, and make very kind of specific advice, uh, it's probably not appreciated and it's probably often uh, not that appropriate for the specific issues that are being dealt with. So, you know, again, I think the federal government, if it wants to play this kind of oversight role, needs to do so on a kind of a more uh, ongoing basis where they they really gain the confidence and participation of the provinces in that, you know, working to solve these solutions isn't just a way for the federal government to claim credit with the Canadian public or to shame the provinces, uh, you know, for what they're doing, but is actually, you know, solving some of these problems. And I think you're right. There's some real... You know, it's it's been 25 years we've been talking about how bad the, uh, the sort of the record keeping and the files uh, and the electronic health records are in this country. And it is a bit of a scandal that our provinces haven't done more uh, to solve that. But I'm not sure the federal government saying you've got to solve that is really going to, to move us forward at this stage. But if the prime minister doesn't have interest in sewing the provinces together, how is each province be interested in sewing itself together with other provinces? Well, I mean, if there's money to be saved, I'm sure they might have an interest, right? If there's ways that they could, you know, I, I mean, I think some of these questions about how do you uh, retain health professionals, if every province is doing their own thing, they may end up just poaching each other's health professionals and right. no one ends up ahead, right? So there may yeah. be some cases where it's pretty clear to them where they could save money or uh, avoid issues where they're really getting in each other's way. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, the ongoing health care issue. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, have you been outside or are you just uh, uh, content with opening the door and saying, nah, and then slamming it again? Uh, it is an ugly day, no matter where you are in and around um, Ontario, southern Ontario, whether you're getting rain, you're getting freezing rain, you're getting snow. Uh, down at our end of the lake, uh, mostly rain at this point. But, man, you, you, you saw the footage of uh, the Garden City Skyway earlier on today. Just a sheer uh, piece of ice and vehicles trying to maneuver their way uh, around that. Uh, trucks getting stuck. It's just uh, not a not a happy scene earlier on today. But again, as the day has progressed, uh, at least in, in our area where we are, it seems that it's just really, really turned uh, mostly terrain. The closer you go to Toronto, uh, it appears, and then, of course, up north, uh, they're getting snow. To talk more about what is going on and where we are in all of this, let's bring in Ross Hall, Global News meteorologist he is with us now ross thanks for the time i hope you're well i am doing well scott thanks so give us a bit of an update where we are right now uh, our end of the lake we seem to be getting mostly rain and then i guess as you go eastward it slowly turns from uh, that to freezing rain to snow yeah, for where I am in Toronto, uh, basically we were expecting more snow uh, and we haven't gotten it. It's basically been wet snow that uh, hasn't been really accumulating. So that's some good news for the commute 
if anyone's going to be traveling to and from Toronto. It's still messy out there. And of course, yes, uh, we saw parts of the QEW, uh, some roadways that are elevated, even though the temperatures at our reporting stations are around the freezing mark, Hamilton, for instance, uh, some of those elevated highways, it gets colder on them. That's why you see those uh, you know, icy bridge signs sometimes when you go over them, uh, those areas could still have some ice on them if they're untreated. And the rain that we've experienced has been, you know, getting rid of some of the brime and some of the uh, treatment that the uh, road crews have been putting on. So still be careful out there tonight. But I think the worst is over for Hamilton. Now, it's a different story, as you mentioned, as you head east, uh, east of Toronto, especially into the north, uh, where we're looking at potential for 15, 20 centimeters uh, heading into Friday morning. It looks like Ottawa, places like Ottawa will get hit the hardest with this because uh, it'll be pure snow, all snow there, whereas we've had this messy mix that we've been dealing with for uh, much of the day around the and area. It, and it's supposed to warm up as the day progresses, Ross? Like, it, you know, it's not getting colder because everybody worries that, you know, you get conditions like this, then it, it gets cold, then all of a sudden uh, everything's an ice rink. Yeah, that's a good point. Oftentimes when you see these systems, we can see a really you know, drastic cool down, temperatures dropping quickly to minus five, minus 10. That's not going to be the story yet. Uh, we are looking at temperatures around the freezing mark uh, to just above overnight into tomorrow. And as we head into the weekend, yeah, uh, tomorrow night into Saturday, temperatures will be below freezing. So you're going to want to get rid of uh, some of that messy slush that you have building up on your driveways and walkways. Uh, but we're not going to experience that flash freeze tonight, which is a, a good thing. Uh, but we are certainly looking at some colder conditions by the weekend and especially cold as we head midweek into next week ahead of uh, the christmas weekend i think temperatures are going to really drop then how long are you expecting the precipitation to last uh, when does the rain and or snow or whatever stop i think it's going to stick around uh not particularly heavy over the next few hours into tomorrow morning but still expects uh rain showers snow depending on where you are around the area that mountain will likely see some wet snow uh so be prepared for that precipitation but not expecting intense accumulations maybe a couple of centimeters of wet snow possible for some spots but uh, it's just going to be more scattered in nature and that will be the story heading into friday and for the weekend too not expecting any significant snow so uh, i was uh, talking to your uh, producer there will and uh, uh, mentioning that he put up his Christmas lights. Not a bad time to do that maybe this weekend uh, if, you, uh, yeah. if you haven't done it yet uh, because we're going to get into some really cold weather next week and likely more snow. So uh, probably a good idea to kind of maybe do some of those things over the weekend ahead of the real cold. So, uh, again, this slop kind of ends in the next day or so, and as it looks the weekend, um, you know, bits of sunshine coming through, but that does those clear skies bring those colder temperatures. And then from there on through till Christmas, it looks like, um, you know, if we get enough uh, precipitation, we, we could see a white Christmas. I think so. I think that certainly the pattern, you know, is going to be cold enough. If we do see any systems moving through, it will be snow, uh, not uh, unlike what we've experienced, which, you know, really gives meteorologists a headache when you're trying to deal with these various precipitation types and warm air at different layers of the atmosphere. Uh, when you've got a column that is completely filled with Arctic air uh, from uh, the upper levels all the way down to the surface, uh, there's no question mark when it comes to the precipitation type. And as we move into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week, ahead of uh, Christmas, of course, which is on uh, Saturday, uh, we are looking at uh, any precipitation that does fall will be in the form of snow. It'll certainly be cold enough for that. Uh, so the chances of a white Christmas, I think, are looking pretty good. So this is good news for the ski resorts, whatever, uh, up in cottage country or, or ski country or whatever, because at least uh, whether they get it or not, and they are getting it, obviously, as part of this, but it will be cold enough that uh, what they don't have, they can always make. 
Exactly. And, you know, that's the other the other side of this whole thing is, you know, a lot of us dread snow, but uh, you're right. A lot of people, a lot of businesses uh, need that snow to operate. And, you know, the, the, the pattern that we're going to see coming up through next week is going to be really right for lake effect snow as well. A lot of those waterways are still uh, vastly uh, unfrozen. So uh, going to be some snow squalls for some of those uh, snow belt areas that'll add to those snowfall amounts. So uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty positive that we are going to start to see more amounts uh, build up, especially in those uh, ski resort areas too. Uh, uh, and getting back to uh, Hamilton, much difference between what's happening uh, in the lower city and what's happening on the mountain, because sometimes that can be tricky as well. Yeah, it, what we've got to watch out for are the temperatures. I gave the example of that bridge, or you know, any any elevated roadway. Well, it's the yeah. same in the mountain. You're kind of higher up in the atmosphere, so the better chance of colder conditions there and any precipitation may be in the form of some wet snow. I think we're done with the freezing rain risk, uh, but those areas could freeze a little bit more. It could be a little more slippery in some of those hilly driveways and, and roadways up there. So uh, just keep that in mind, especially if it's not treated. Any untreated roads and walkways will likely still be uh, slippery tonight into tomorrow morning. All right. So rain, pretty much precipitation into uh, tomorrow morning, Friday morning. And then as we get into the weekend, sun returns. You got it. All right, there you have it. Ross Hall with us, Global News Meteorologist, uh, about what is going on in and around uh, the lake in southern Ontario with this storm that we're getting. Ross, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. You as well. All right, so uh, there you have it, depending on where really where you are. I mean, if you're at this end of the lake, we're getting pretty much rain. You go into the other elevations, uh, obviously it can turn to snow. As Ross said, the it, it looks like the freezing rain stuff is uh, is over at this point. But as you get east of us and into towards Toronto and then north up into cottage country, uh, obviously uh, more snow. And good news for those that uh, you know want to do some skiing between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, you may get your wish, that's for sure. And it looks like uh what the heck a white christmas too when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 CHML. we've talked uh, at length about um, uh, canadian liquid natural gas and whether there is a case for it uh, just the other day we were talking about nuclear fusion and uh, the great gains that have been made there but still obviously a long ways away as is uh hydrogen we're perfecting solar, uh, wind, storage for EV, uh, minerals to possibly build on all of this. But where does this leave uh, Canada's uh, Canadian liquid natural gas? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University, with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. So we remember the German uh, chancellor coming here and hoping for a natural gas deal didn't happen. We saw that go elsewhere. We're hearing the U.S. is um, has really been moving forward with this uh, and and uh, uh, um, terminals and such for liquid natural gas as of 2016. Are we? Um, are, is this a train that we should be trying to catch, or should we let this pass us by? Oh, I would definitely say this is a train that we want to be on as much as possible. And, and in Canada's credit, we came to that conclusion well, not quite 10 years ago, roughly 2016. And uh, many large companies formed a partnership. Uh, it was called LNG Canada, Liquefied Natural Gas Canada. And uh, we're going to build a terminal, and we're going to liquefy natural gas, and we're going to export it. And we are building such a terminal, terminal in Kitimat, British Columbia. 
but as always in Canada, you have to do all your environmental studies and your assessments, and you've got to get your protocols, and da-da-da-da-da, and then you had to build the Northern Gateway Pipeline to bring natural gas from Alberta to the West Coast, where it would be liquefied to put on boats. And at this point, that whole thing is scheduled to come online, wait for it, in 2025. So the problem isn't that we shouldn't be on the train. We, by the time we're ready to get on the train, the train may already be leaving. Now, the German chancellor came over here earlier this year to say, we're interested in getting some of your natural gas. We have an abundant supply of natural gas, uh, but it doesn't make sense to ship it from the west coast of Canada. When you ship that way, then boats tend to cross the Pacific. Then they would have to work their way through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean. Then you'd have to loop around... <laughs> England and Norway, and come into Germany from the north, that's a long, long journey. Boy, it would be a lot shorter if you could ship it from the east coast. And, of course, you know what the answer there is. We don't have any liquefied natural gas terminals on the east coast, and we have no prospect of building one quickly. So, and this ties earlier to a comment this week from uh, uh, one of the ministers who said about critical minerals, you know, we need to be on this boat, but we also need to find out a way to get this much faster. The way things are in Canada, from start to finish, from idea to implementation, it often takes 10, 15, 20 years. And if we take that much time, we're not going to be part of these strategies going forward. So that's where we stand today. It's still a good idea. It's something we should be doing, but we've got to do it faster. Liquefied natural gas is not part of a carbon-free future, but it is a stepping stone to get people off something like coal. And there are nations yeah. in the world that are burning coal to generate electricity. While, yes, burning liquefied natural gas is not carbon-free, it is a much better product to burn to get electricity than coal. And it's an intermediate step for the next, let's say, 10, 15 years, get us to 2030, a little past that. Ultimately, 50 years from now, liquefied natural gas is not part of the equation. But if we can do it quickly, we should, because there is a future in this product. Uh, what about the projects that you were talking about, the one in Vancouver and Kitimat? Uh, how many have been canceled? Yes. Well, <laughs> again, thanks to being the uh, slow turtle in the race here, a lot of them. In, in uh, 2016, when this was first formed, uh, there was interest on 20 different proposals, 20 different proposals, how we could be part of this, uh, get involved in this way, that way, some other way. And because it's taking so long, uh, 16 of those 20 have disappeared. So there are still four proposals. Now, those that remain actually have gotten bigger. So in terms of volume, they're still all viable, but they're also getting tired. And this is the difference in the United States. It was around 2016 that the United States opened its first LNG exporting terminal. Now they have 10 of them. Uh, in the six years or so that have passed, we can't get our first one done until 2025. This is what I mean by being part of that race. It's a good race to be in, but we got to find a way to do it faster. And, and of course, uh, we talked earlier, federal government talking about exploration and getting ahead of the curve when it comes to minerals. But what's the difference between mining minerals and mining fuel? Uh, are we not going to see the same obstacles there? Correct. That's, I mean, this is the bottom line. If, if we want to be part of the new economies and the new things that are driving cleaner energy, we've got to find a way to speed them up. And it's, it's all well and good to recognize the problem. You know, they always say this, 
first step is to recognize the problem, and we recognize the problem. Good. Now, what are we going to fix? How are we going to speed it up? Part of it does seem that, uh, along with environmental assessments, many of these resources either lie on or you have to cross uh, territory that is First Nations. And it seems one of the ways to speed it up is to have the First Nations themselves take an ownership stake in these, become maybe not 100% owners, but at least partial owners, and that will speed up their approvals and get them on site. And there actually are, I believe at this point the number is 12, and it might be as many as 15, First Nations groups who are prepared to invest in LNG projects in Canada if they can make them happen. So there are some steps to make this faster, but I, I just worry recognizing the problem is not enough. We need an implementation plan and a fast one that probably also involves those wonderful people called provinces that have a hard time agreeing on anything, too. Uh, I talked to Elizabeth May, uh, head of the Green Party, about why we don't focus on getting the world off coal instead of all this piecemeal approach that we have and use clean liquid natural gas to do that, cleaner. Uh, and she said it's too late for that. And I'm old enough to remember them saying that 20 years ago, which is when she said this should have been done, and they were canceling pipelines then that would have helped us now. So how do you square that circle? Well, I don't exactly. You know, Elizabeth May has a, a viewpoint around a clean future, and LNG is not part of that future. She, she would be much more in favor of hydrogen. She'd be much more in favor of investing in fusion technology. I don't know how fast we go from bench to production. Much of this stuff sort of works in theory in a lab. Are we ready to get these into production? I, I think that's a 20, 30, 50 year time frame. LNG is here today. And it's actually the technology to liquefy natural gas is not new. We know how to do it. We just need to build the facilities. And frankly, we need a facility on the West Coast. At least Kitimat's under construction. But we also need one on the East Coast, and we're quite a ways away from it. So uh, I, I don't mean to disagree with Elizabeth May. I think she has a great point of view. But there is the theory versus the practice. And I think there's going to be a need for this kind of a product uh, at least for two more decades, uh, because I don't think the world itself will be able to go carbonless as fast as many pundits would like. Marvin Ryder, professor at Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. When I tell this to my kids, uh, they'll say I'm never moving to the United States. But in the U.S., the Senate unanimously approved a measure Wednesday night that would ban federal employees from using TikTok on their government devices. A move made out of security concern over the app and its Chinese-owned parent company. Uh, what does this mean for you and I? Is it a reason to take this off our device? Are they stealing our data? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, great to be back, Scott. Thanks for having me. Uh, my kids are dead if this is the case, Carmi, because I think I must get three of these sent to me a day. And there's, oh, there's nothing funny than watching a dog running around on thin ice on a lake. And then all of a sudden, boom, it goes through. Oh, you cannot buy those kind of laughs, Carmi. Uh, that being said, we are very cautious about, uh, and we've heard it with the RCMP and, and different security breaches. Is there a security concern with TikTok considering where it is from? There is. And I mean, the context within which this is happening is no, TikTok is not going dark across the U.S. or even in Canada anytime soon. But long term, there are clouds gathering on the horizon. The problem is, is that this app, compared to other apps, 
it soaks up more data. We've seen research that shows that in the background, you know, way beneath all of those cool videos that we're watching and sharing, uh, it is pulling a lot more data from your phone than, say, Facebook would or Snapchat would. Uh, and that's bad enough. That's problematic. It's pulling information from the sensors, your contact information, your location information, uh, other apps that you might have installed, any shared data, it soaks that up too. Um, and that's bad enough. What's worse, though, is where it gets shared afterward. Unlike Facebook, which, of course, is an American company, Snapchat, that's an American company, Twitter, American company, even though Elon Musk, we're not quite sure. Um, the, 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 with, with TikTok, it is owned by a company called ByteDance, which is a Chinese tech company. And the company swears up and down that data doesn't go to China. It's not shared with the Communist Party of China. It's it's stored in the U.S. It's stored in, in you know not in China. And they take great pains to ensure that it is just as secure as any other app. But just like Huawei say, said. It, exactly. And, and you know, of course, that's what they'll say. Of course, that's what their North American PR arms will always say. Uh, but we've seen evidence and we've seen research that that indicates the, the exact opposite. If you're a Chinese company, you must sign a deal with the, with the Communist Party of China that if they ask for data, you got to provide it. And you don't have a choice. If you want to do business in China, this is the deal. And there's also evidence of data going places where the company says it isn't. And so, you know, as a parent of children who also use this app, I worry about that. I, I worry about how much communist China knows about what my kids are up to. And it might seem innocuous. Hey, they're just fun videos. But truth of the matter is, is there's a lot of personal data floating by on all of our smartphones and in the wrong hands that can be really damaging even if all you're doing is sharing cute videos so we're concerned about we were concerned about 5g the network we we're concerned about security breaches with the rcmp and, and chinese companies being involved in that why is this not why is this not raising red flags why are we not shutting this down well, it's interesting because it, it it's starting to, and it, it you know for years those concerns have been raised, they've been discussed, and about two years ago, uh, former President Donald Trump tried to force TikTok to sell itself to an American company, Walmart. Uh, was, of course, uh, at the front of the line to buy the company. But then the deal got challenged in court and it ultimately fell apart. Trump, of course, no longer in office and that died. Uh, so now we are seeing a bipartisan bill uh, being presented. Republicans and Democrats are supporting it to do exactly that, to basically force TikTok to to prove that it can move its data and, and not share its data with China. And if it can't do that, then Americans will not be allowed to have access to it. So worst case scenario, TikTok can potentially go dark in the U.S. a few years from now. Um, so it is being dealt with and, and the, the wick is being lit as we speak probably because the Republicans are taking over the House in January and they want to get tough with China. So to a certain extent, TikTok is a bit of a pawn. Um, it's not going to go dark anytime soon, but the U.S. is drawing a line in the sand with China saying, you're not going to push us around anymore. We're going to get tough on things, including your flagship social media platform. And that's where it starts. And I think that's why we're seeing this happen now. But it's also probably a good opportunity for us to look at all of the apps that we're using, all of the, the technologies that we're using and going, are we exposing ourselves unnecessarily? Are we paying attention to where all this stuff is coming from? Because if we aren't, we may find ourselves on, on the wrong end of a cybersecurity breach and we won't even be able to prosecute those responsible for it because they'll be buried in China. We won't be able to go after them. So where is the public on this, Carmi? Do they care or are they just, just give me my TikTok, man? I don't care about this stuff. 
Yeah, they just want their cool videos. Uh, and and anytime I raise it in, you know, talking with friends, family members, I was at a party on the weekend and we were chatting about this very issue. I get the strangest mm. looks because no one can believe that TikTok would present such a clear and present cybersecurity danger to all of us. They just think, oh, videos, woohoo. Uh, but the reality is that the, the, the back end underneath the soft underbelly of this app is pretty troubling and and as as a technology analyst it it has worried me for years and it worries me to this day the company does not do a very good job of convincing us that it is in fact doing the right thing in fact many of their senior leaders were testifying to congress last week and as they were testifying you had experts in congress who were essentially accusing the company of lying saying you're telling us that you're protecting the data, but you're not. We know it's where it's going. So I wouldn't trust him as far as I can throw him. And no, I mean, we can't turn off TikTok. We're all kind of uh, addicted to it at this point, but it's not without its misgivings and it's not without its risks to us. And I think we've got to open our eyes a little bit now because uh, it's only going to get worse if we don't pay more attention to it. And how can we complain of what the government's up to if this is what we're up to and we don't seem to care? You know, if it's RCMP security, it's one thing. TikTok, it doesn't matter. I think that's exactly it. You know, on the one hand, like we all agree, we need better cybersecurity uh, in general. Society needs to do a better job of it. But most of us as individuals don't seem to be doing uh, our part to cut down our risk. We don't read the terms of use statements, which explain all of this in there. It's all there. We don't use smart password protocol. We install apps we probably shouldn't. We click on links we probably shouldn't. So most of us, you know, really take cybersecurity and we kind of shove it down, you know, way down the priority list. We don't take it seriously and we should. And so as a result, and I hate to say this, but you know, when bad things happen, it often comes back to our behaviors. And if we change them even just a little bit, we could do a lot to reduce our reduce our personal risk profile and, you know, frankly, walk the walk instead of just talk the talk. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, U.S. Senate uh, approving a measure that would ban the federal employees from using TikTok. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Lots of chatter of late in regard to election interference by the uh, uh, government of China, by the Chinese Communist Party, specifically the 2019 election and uh, 11 MPs who were targeted by foreign influence. Um, the prime minister saying he wasn't aware of it. Minister Jolie has just said she has no info on the MPs that are targeted. Uh, many are questioning all of this let's bring in duff conacher co-founder of democracy watch and with us now duff thanks for the time i hope you're well yes i am thank you so obviously this information has come out through uh canada's agencies and such are you concerned that um the prime minister uh is saying that he wasn't briefed on this and now we have uh, melanie jolie uh, minister Mel uh, melanie jolie asked about the mps being targeted she has apparently no information on any of that are you surprised should they have that information uh well it's a report by Global News, uh, Sam Cooper, investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. And um, the, he has CSIS sources saying that that report was filed with the Prime Minister uh, in January of uh, 2021. So I don't know. Uh, CSIS should have referred that matter to the Commissioner of Canada Elections, who actually enforces the election law for investigation if they didn't do that at that time 
then they were not doing their jobs properly because that's the legal authority that would investigate. And so it, it's hard to tell exactly uh, what's going on because CSIS hasn't issued a statement. And the, the uh, Global News report by Sam Cooper says that it was CSIS sources who said there was such a report filed with the prime minister's office. Um, uh, go ahead. That's We're just kind of stuck until we hear from CSIS. So uh, would they be looking for that information now and, and looking to report back later? I mean, obviously, uh, Minister Jolie was asked, uh, you know, who, who those MPs are. She said she didn't have that information. So the media is digging down deeper into stories, obviously, that uh, they don't have the information uh, for um, Dominic LeBlanc, uh, intergovernment of, intergovernmental affairs, said that that information doesn't exist. The answer doesn't exist. Do you think the answer does exist? I don't know. Um, it's a it's a CISA said, and Trudeau liberals said something else. Situation right now. Hmm. Um, why those CISA sources would confirm it to only one news reporter? And CSIS not issue a statement following that. I don't make it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, that information again should have been filed with the Commissioner of Canada Elections. It's not the Prime Minister who enforces the elections law. It's the Commissioner. If CSIS didn't do that, then they did something wrong because they shouldn't be passing that information on to one leader of one party. That's not proper. It's about the election and ensuring the election is fair. And so should be made public to everybody or passed on to the legal authority who investigates those type of violations, which is the Commissioner of Canada Elections. And uh, so I, I'm not sh- sure why CSIS has let this sit out there now for uh, for days, weeks now, actually, without making a statement as to whether this uh, report exists. Because I don't see the danger of disclosing it, that it exists, Um Commissioner of Canada Elections would be investigating anyway now for a year and a half, and anyone who's being investigated would know they're being investigated by now. So, again, CSIS, do your job properly and and, uh, let Canadians know, is this true or not? Uh, And um, let's assume it is, uh, just for the sake of this discussion. Um, If they know that there is interference of some way, in some way, would they not know who it involves? In other words, those 11 MPs. Yes. I mean, how do you name, how do you know 11 MPs without knowing who they are? (laughs) And according to the report as well, there were, there's uh, an MPP, Ontario MPP involved and a federal uh, political staff person involved, and they were also trying to place uh, people into MPs' offices. Uh, as as uh, and this, this, these were China-sponsored, China-funded organizations in Canada doing all of this. That's all we know. We don't know the details. And again, if it, if uh, the sources at CSIS were willing to tell this to one reporter. And why aren't they willing to uh, release it and, or CSIS, uh, their their bosses, confirm or deny? I don't see the danger in confirming or denying that this information is accurate at this point. With these the M- 2019 election, it's not going to overturn the results of that election. We've had another election since. So. Right. <laughs> uh, would the MPs, is it possible the MPs may not even know about this? 
certainly, interference. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. It, it, um, anyone could find anyone to go and, and volunteer on a campaign, and the, mm-hmm. the, the candidate wouldn't know. And same with the party volunteering. Um, and then there's third party activity. Uh, third parties mean being interest groups. Interest groups can do lots of things to support a, a, a campaign. Uh, their own door-to-door canvassing, their own uh, phone call campaigns, um, and, uh, of course, social media. And all that can be funded uh, very easily by a foreign source. It's not legal, but uh, third parties, candidates, and parties all choose their own auditors. It's very dangerous. It shouldn't be allowed. Uh, the audit, the, and so it's very easy to choose an auditor and just say, you know, fudge this and fudge that to hide up, hide the spending that I did or the source of the money or, or these donations that I received that were illegal. And it's a fundamental change that has to happen. If MPs are really serious about stopping this interference of foreign money, then Elections Canada should be auditing everybody. It's the independent body. And it would do, it could have an audit division that would audit everybody. It would actually cost less because, Yes, candidates, parties, and third parties uh, audit uh, are responsible for their own audits and paying them, but they get paid back the audit expenses. So uh, it would cost less to have a team at Elections Canada do this auditing, and it would be much more independent, and uh, and that would help uh, stop any fudging of the financial statements of candidates, parties, or third parties. Um, both said, the Prime Minister and the Minister said they weren't aware of these situations. Do you get the feeling, are you confident they're looking for those answers now? I would hope they would be asking CSIS to uh, also confirm or deny the information, since the report says that the report the, the uh, report by Global News, uh, Sam Cooper says that the, the, uh, the CSIS report was handed to the Prime Minister. So... If he doesn't have it, he should certainly be asking them to release it and confirm and deny. And I, again, I don't understand why why um, you have CSIS sitting on a confirmation or denial of this now for, for weeks. It's been out there. It's caused uh, a House committee to hold hearings and ask more questions. They're not getting the answers. And so we need this cleared up for sure. There has been confirmation that China was involved in activities interfering, but it didn't affect anything. And not, no mention of 11 candidates. Um, but, you know, that, that's kind of known that there's interference uh, of some sort by China or, or Russia in, into our elections. The question is, what's the extent of it and what can we do to stop it? And there's no way to know how to stop it if you don't know the details of what's happening. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, talking about interference by the alleged interference by the Chinese government on the 2019 federal election. Duff, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. Happy holidays. We don't talk you- again. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know what's been happening in Canada and the um, 
the amount of attention now that uh, uh, the Chinese government is getting here, whether it's uh, accusations of uh, influencing elections here, whether it's police stations set up here to harass Chinese Canadians here, whether it's um, RCMP and security systems that are linked to uh, companies in China and such. Um, we know how Canada is on all of this. But here's an interesting story out of the United States where a 25-year-old Chinese student was arrested and charged in a U.S. federal court in Boston uh, on Wednesday, accused of harassing a Chinese pro-democracy activist in the United States. A student at the Berkeley College of Music was charged with one count of stalking. He was accused of sending threats to the victim through Instagram, email, and Chinese social media platform WeChat after learning through Instagram that the victim had put up a pro-democracy flyer near the campus in October. The flyer saying, we want freedom, we want democracy, stand with Chinese people. Basically, uh, the threat was, stop this or they'll cut off a hand. Um, and blammo, we have what we have with this story. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you. So we've often talked about how uh, Canada has a cozy relationship with China. In the U.S., are they less tolerant of this sort of behavior than we are in Canada? I don't know if there's a way to do that kind of comparison. What we do know is that there is increasing awareness of the activities of the Chinese government on the Communist Party, particularly through the United Workers Front Department, uh, a bureaucratic arm of the state, which is designed to go overseas and uh, not only create influence, but also change behaviors. We should make clear that all states try to shape a fa in a favorable way public opinion abroad. We spend a lot of time on that. But once it becomes coercive and once it becomes corrupt, uh, then it crosses a line. There's a lot of concern now that uh, in Canada, as you pointed out, we found uh, evidence that that was activity was going on here, perhaps in an effort even to change the, or, or at least affect our elections. But uh, you were asking about the U.S., and I've, I've got a quote from the FBI here. The counterintelligence and economic espionage efforts emanating from the government of China and the Chinese Communist Party are a grave threat to the economic well-being and democratic values of the United States. And here's the, here's the bring it home. Confronting this threat is the FBI's top counterintelligence priority. So China has hmm. moved up to be the number one concern for the FBI in the U.S., uh, whether this particular incident is a will be a provable incident, instance of the uh, party itself through its uh, overseas activity, urging suppression abroad, we can't be sure. We do know that that is fitting uh, in, in keeping with the pattern as identified by the FBI. Uh, we've certainly heard of the United Workers Front and, and, and what their ob objective is and such. But for the most part, these uh, agencies, whatever, would operate under the radar. Um, how is China feeling now that they're getting all of this attention, not only a shift from Canada, which is obviously a smaller player, but from the United States even? I suspect uh, it will not dent their activities to uh, suppress dissent abroad, and, uh, and uh, on the other side of it, to create a favorable attitude toward the PRC. 
that activity, I think, will continue unabated. They may have to shift their tactics if it's starting to be detectable and correctable by FBI action. Do you think this puts pressure on Canada to alter its policy in any way? I suspect our policy is not that far off from the United States in terms of mm-hmm. the counterintelligence activities and also the recognition of increasingly the recognition of how China chooses to behave abroad. Again, uh, trying to affect public opinion abroad is a legitimate act of all governments. We do a lot of it. All states do. Soft power is a concept in international relations where we uh, send our singers and our dancers abroad to, you know, make Mounties and Maple Leaf and Mountains, uh, our image. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes coercive like this, and this was a very coercive activity, and if it can be traced back not to patriotic fervor by by a student, but in fact by the uh, activities of the state abroad, yes, I think Canada and the U.S. are likely to be uh, on on the same page in the same boat as well. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and uh, Chinese interference in other countries abroad, whether it's um, elections or harassing uh, citizens that are here. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. Same to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. There is some good news, and I know I know our health system is working day in, day out to provide care to Ontarians, but from my vantage point, looking at data at a population level in Ontario, some of the trends are heading in a better direction. And, and I do think that there, there, there may be less pressure on the acute care sector in the coming days. That should, if it follows the normal pattern, winter pattern uh, that we saw occur in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere this year, continue to make uh, that disease burden less of a risk uh, for Ontarians and Canadians. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, uh, Ontario's top doc, and, and uh, you know, we have to be very careful here. He didn't say take your foot off the gas. He didn't say, all right, time to party. Woo, 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 woo. He said it, it appears that things are starting to peak in certain hospital settings. Uh, and I know when you, it's, it's a fine line between giving you the information and, and, and trying to change your behavior in any way. And, and I don't think anybody's asking anybody to do that. It's just, here's the latest information. Uh, it appears that things are peaking but obviously uh we got a call from somebody and and notes from people that are saying well you know after the holidays and and we remember this all all during the uh global pandemic that after the holidays things you know would spike for about two weeks or so and then come back down many are concerned is that what we may be heading into here of course that still is a possibility but the point i think the doctor was making is that he is seeing signs of this uh peaking uh at least from the you know a hospital standpoint still health care under tremendous stress, and we can't uh, downplay that in any way. Let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, my pleasure. Happy to chat. And your thoughts on uh, what Dr. Kieran Moore said today, your interpretation, uh, and as we said, the concerns that some feel this may uh, go up during the uh, the holidays for obvious reasons. Yeah, well, I hope Dr. Moore is right. I mean, it'd be wonderful if it was peaking and coming down. The thing is, hope really is never a good strategy. Maybe, maybe it is. We know in Australia, for example, with influenza, their season started early and was a very rough season, but it also ended earlier as well as we see the flu is 
out of sync with its regular rhythm as it you know would would normally peak a little bit later and start a bit later during a regular flu season i'm not sure i I really don't know i really don't know i think there's also clues that COVID is on the rise again as well driven by you know some uh wastewater signals heading northward and and uh hospitalizations flat but uh but uh you know we we also know that as you point out we're coming up to the holidays and there's going to be innumerable gatherings and it's just an opportunity unfortunately for viruses to to be transmitted to be amplified in the community so i I, to your point i think no one would be surprised at all if we see a rise in some signals be it COVID or influenza around uh around the next couple of weeks especially during and after uh after the holidays uh as you mentioned i remember after every holiday whether it was thanksgiving whether it was christmas whether it was this that or the other there was always the question of um and then after we saw it it's uh, we're going to see another peak in another week or two we're going to see another peak in, in a week or two is the message different now that um it's more flu and in in the respiratory virus than it is covid um is the message different this year it i mean to some extent it is and uh another extent it isn't i mean First of all, we we obviously can't pretend that it's 2020 anymore or even 2021. Listen, we've got vaccines that are widely available for COVID and for for influenza, and we know they work well in reducing the risk of infection and, of course, reducing the severity of infection if people do get infected. Uh, On the other hand, too, listen, we know our healthcare system is, is really stretched. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the same rules apply. Like, enjoy the holidays. Have a wonderful time. But obviously, if you're feeling crummy, it doesn't matter if it's flu or COVID or RSV or who knows what. It doesn't matter. If you're feeling crummy, don't go and get other people sick. Stay home. And I think, you know, it, it's probably a lot more socially acceptable in yeah. 2022 and 2023 to say, you know what, I'm feeling under the weather. I'm not going to go. Uh, and, and in all fairness, like you can have a safe and, and relaxing and wonderful holiday. Uh, but just be smart, right? Be up to date on those vaccines. Stay home if you're sick. And I, I want to, you know, don't throw out those COVID rapid tests. I think they're still helpful. If someone feels crummy and they swab positive, you got COVID. You shouldn't be going mm-hmm. anywhere and infecting anyone. Stay home. So it's still, you know, we do have some tools to help keep us safe and our family safe throughout the holidays. You talked about, and I remember um, experts saying that this had been an earlier flu season than past. Uh, does that necessarily mean that it ends earlier? Why is that the case? It starts early, it ends early. Yeah, it means nothing. It really, it really does. Listen, I wouldn't be surprised if it does, but sometimes with flu, we think, we often say that it's predictably unpredictable. Just because something happens in the southern hemisphere doesn't mean it's going to happen in the northern hemisphere. Having said that, yeah, our season started earlier. It, it very well may end earlier, which would be a godsend, but uh, I don't think we can rely on that. And even if it does end earlier, we're still neck deep in influenza right now, uh, and we're still under-vaccinated as a community right now there's still lots of steps we can take to at least reduce the community burden of flu uh obviously just like covid we've got a healthcare system that's in a fragile state uh but we've got people who who are in dire need health wise except not older this time but younger is the message should the message be different about getting the kids vaccinated this time well, you know, influenza vaccines are really available for six months of age and older. And, you know, Ontario doesn't really release data on vaccine status by age, but other provinces do. And we're not going to be that different from other provinces. And in general, uh, when you look across the country, 
uh, the rates of vaccinations in those younger cohorts is less than 20 percent. Then in the same breath, if you look at the rates of hospitalization with flu are highest in the age zero to five cohort and in the 65 plus cohort. So we are totally underutilizing our flu shots. I mean, listen, they're not going to stop a pandemic. They're not going to stop a flu season, but they certainly will blunt it and they will protect individuals and they will protect families. It's a really good idea to get a flu shot every year, but it's an especially good idea to get a flu shot this year when we know our healthcare system is stretched and we know how many how challenging it is in the in the pediatric hospital world right now. Uh, obviously, uh, we know that this is approved for those over six months. NASI has said that, but it always appears, doctor, that it was for the older, the elder, the vulnerable, whatever. Do we need to change that message more so about the young, considering where we are? We absolutely do, and in fact. We've had data that spans decades, and we've known this for forever, that flu hits the youngest and the oldest. We know Mm. that. That's always been the case. Uh, There's nothing new on that front in terms of who is disproportionately impacted by the flu. This is going to come out wrong. I apologize in advance for how I'm going to say it. My heart's in the right place. But with COVID, yes, of course, young kids can get COVID and young kids can get sick from COVID, but it... It's that 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 it, it COVID disproportionately impacts the older age group, and in fact, yeah. yes, of course, young kids can get sick, but not nearly at the same rate as the older cohorts. And and you know, the over sixty crowd and really the over eighty crowd is disproportionately impacted by that, and is is in hospital and succumbing to the illness. Whereas with flu, no, it's the youngest and the oldest. Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general uh, internal medicine, infectious diseases, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Do not let the guard down yet and get that flu shot. Doctor, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great day. I'm trying to find out more about the green belt because it's uh, obviously an incredibly hot button issue. And uh, from what I've learned so far, you just don't touch that dang thing. You just keep your hands away from it. Uh, at least that's what we're being told. Uh, so we're trying for a little green belt uh, 101 here and finding out more about it. Let's bring in Dr. Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Uh, thanks for the time, Frank. Hope you're well. I'm fine, Scott. Thank you. So I went on uh, uh, Google, and I'm looking up uh, the, the green belt, trying to find out as much as I can. And we all know what the Golden Horseshoe is. It's the area uh, around the lakeshore, say, from Buffalo to Oshawa-Bowmanville area. We know that the majority of Ontario's population is within so many kilometers of the lakeshore. You can see the development of the greater Toronto-Hamilton area all around there. The green belt, a line drawn just behind that development, which kind of mirrors it, and in some cases actually bigger than the development itself you can see how when you draw a line between the green belt and the lake immediately everything between the lake and the green belt is going to go up in price and you're going to start to force densification which probably way back when was a great plan now as you look at this you can see how it's slowly filling up and obviously there's chatter of expanding it, doing this to it, or invading it in one way, uh, and, and, and lots, of, uh, lots of debate ensued. I guess my question here is, what do you do once that area between the green belt and the lake is done, is developed, uh, and I know we're not there yet, but I'm sure it's not too far in the future. What do you do beyond that? Do you go north of the green belt or outside of the green belt and start developing it from the other side? Uh, 
Um, how is is the is the message here? You just don't touch it, or is it time to really get into this and reset what the green belt is and what it means to us? Uh, the 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 real uh, the real situation is that there's all kinds of land uh, between what we call the built-up urban area and the uh, the green belt. Uh, the jargon for it is called white belt. It's right. uh, and Hamilton, for example, the minister of municipal affairs and housing just insisted that uh, required Hamilton to bring a, a lot more land, you know, into its green belt or sorry, it's, uh, uh, as, you know, for, for development, farmland and so on for development. Um, greenfield lands is what we call them. And that, that's, that's part of the white belt. That's not the green belt. So Hamilton could have, you know, uh, another 3,000, 4,000 acres of land before it has to touch the green belt, for, you know, for, for land for the future. And similarly with York region and uh, Peel region, uh, and Durham. Uh, so there's a, probably another 30, 40 year supply of land uh, that doesn't have to be, if it came on stream quickly, it doesn't have to be, uh, and we don't have to touch the green belt as a whole. But what the province has done this time, because they've come up with very ambitious targets for housing uh, supply. And the reason for that is that if you increase supply over and demand doesn't go up as much, of course, prices are really stabilized, if not drop off a little bit. But uh, so we're trying to deal with the affordability problem by, by increasing uh, supply. And, uh, and, and so what the province has done with the Greenbelt, it said, okay, let's, let's uh, find some lands right on the Greenbelt, right close to urban centers where the services are ready, you know, readily available and we can right. get the land on the market pretty darn fast. And there's only 7,200 7, acres of that land. And that's what the province is proposing to, uh, to develop uh, in the Greenbelt. Out of two million acres, seventy-two hundred acres. So, are cities taking advantage of that uh, white belt area you're talking about? Are they developing those lands? Well, they are, but they're doing it very, very slowly. We just did a study at our center uh, looking at lands in Halton Region and uh, North Oakville and and uh, in, in, uh, some lands in Milton. And it takes and, and looking at we've looked at York Region. And once land is designated as greenfield, like Hamilton now is going to have, is going to be designating land as greenfield that they didn't want to do, this council didn't want to do, but the province has said they had to do it. It's taking, on average, at least ten years from that designation, the day of that designation, hmm. to a first house is built on the land. So it's it's a whole the planning process so onerous and detailed and involved and uncertain and costly that. Uh, um, that what the province has said, we got to speed. We got to get more housing on the market quickly. We can't wait ten years or fifteen years to get the the the, the, the land ready, serviced, and, and ready to go and build some houses. Let's start building some houses right now on land that's ready to go. And it makes so much sense. Uh, up in York Region, for example, there's a a gold station that's been built uh, in Gormley, uh, in, in near you know part, not far from Richmond Hill. And uh, there's nothing around it because it's green stuff. Hmm. So it just makes all the sense in the world to develop around that uh, that go station because you got transit. That's what we're trying. You know, everybody's trying to say we need you know improve transit and get more people using transit. Well, you got to put the housing close to the transit if you want uh, uh, people to use it. If cities were making more efficient use of their white belt, would we have to be touching the green belt? Uh, if they well, it's it's not efficient. It's more bring it bring it on the market more quickly. That's that's the problem. It's it's, a, it's you know when it, when demand goes up, like we're we know demand is going to be increasing uh, even more in Ontario because of immigration targets rising at the federal level. Uh, so this demand means we know we need more and more housing, and the, the municipalities 
municipalities aren't governed by the price mechanism. You know, if it, if it was a private market and somebody says there's a shortage of a product like service land, you know, the people, the private sector would bring that land on pretty darn fast. You know, within two, three, four, five years. Uh, government doesn't have that motive. They don't have that profit motive. Uh, they just uh, they have all kinds of different objectives, and they, they just uh, they, and and they, they they just everything is extremely slow, particularly in the planning, the whole urban planning process is extremely slow and uh, sluggish, and uh, it just takes forever to do it, and it's costly. What do you say to those that uh, that say that if you speed this up, whether it's removing development charges, removing uh, red tape, you're just playing into the developers? It's a developer's field day. Uh, well, people seem to forget that 95% of all the housing in this country is built by developers. <laughs> exactly. So if, if, you want, if you want to get housing built, who's going to build them? Yeah, you're going to get city of Hamilton or the city of Mississauga going out and building the houses, and they're going to do a lot better job of it than the developers. So no, it's a, if you want to get housing built, you've got to have developers. Now the one thing I kind of worry about a little bit, I must say, is that I hope that no developer got advanced knowledge of where these lands that were picked to you know greenbelt lands. Uh, close to urban areas. Uh, there is some, you know, uh, Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail have had some articles that uh, suggest, and as I said, just suggest that perhaps it's, some people knew that this land might be, be uh, you know, designated for development uh, because they bought the land fairly recently, like 2018. Now, that's, a, that, that's another issue uh, about that, you know, the criteria that was actually used and who knew what. But the fact is, the more land you bring on the market, the more quickly, the more you know, the, the better it's going to be. Uh, is the other side of the green belt developing as fast, or is it developing? Uh, yeah, it's developing. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other place outside the green belt, you get into areas like Woodstock and London, uh, yeah. and those areas uh, are developing fairly fast. Uh, so what's happening is that you know, as prices go up in the city of Toronto and the Toronto uh, 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 metropolitan area. Uh, people go farther out. So they were going to Hamilton, for example. Then the people in Hamilton go to Niagara region because they can't afford to be yeah. in Hamilton. They go to Brantford or maybe go to Woodstock, which isn't that far. And same with people living and working in Kitchener and Waterloo. They can go to London. And London, I think, is doing quite well right now. So there is a spreading out of uh, uh, of uh, development because of the high cost of housing closer in. So so we are jumping. If you want to call it, we are jumping the green belt. Uh, uh, to uh, to some degree, not a huge amount, but it's starting, and that that will continue. So areas outside the green belt, if they're not brought in under the same legislation as the green, uh, as the Greater Golden Horseshoe, there will be a develop you know a jumping jumping of development beyond the green belt. Dr. Frank Clayton with us, Senior Research Fellow, Center for Urban Research and Land Development, Toronto Metropolitan University. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the news at 6 o'clock, the Scott Radley Show. You can also uh, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am great. How are you? 
I'm doing very well. I'm continuing my Greenbelt 101 class and uh, right. had a great conversation with Dr. Frank Clayton today, Senior Research Fellow, Urban Research, Land Development, Toronto Metropolitan University, and trying to understand, um, you know, because you've got the Greenbelt going around the Golden Horseshoe, which means everything between the lake and the Greenbelt has gone up in price because you can't build beyond that. It's obviously there to force densification, which it has done, but what happens once that area gets congested? Do you just build on the other side of the green belt? And and Frank Clayton said that um, uh, there's there's still white land, which is between development in the city and the green belt, um, that'll probably last us for the next 20 uh, or so years. But the problem is it takes so long to develop that because municipalities, uh, there's so much red tape and such. So one of the reasons the green belt is being tapped is because we can't get this white lands developed fast enough because the cities have no incentive to to really speed it up in any way. Uh, he also pointed out that 7,000 acres are going to be taken out of the green belt. 9,000 are going to be added. There's 2 million in total. So the, the green belt land they're going to tap is closest to uh, services so they can get it built faster as opposed to waiting for uh, cities and municipalities to develop uh, the white lands, the the white belt per se. Okay. So, so fascinating so, discussion. But anytime you draw a line and say you can't build beyond it, everything in it is going to go up in price. Uh, so Scott, I took judo as a kid. I was not good at it, but I, but I thought yellow belt <laughs> and orange belt came between white and green belt. I'm not sure on that. And you got the blue belt and then the black belt. And we could expand out to the third degree black belt if you want. Um, Look, All I know is I'm on the mat and it's stinky. Yeah, it's I quit when I was about seven or eight and a girl absolutely threw me around the gym. And back in those days, that was not acceptable for a a seven or eight year old boy. And was like, out of here. No, I you know, this you bring up something very interesting as you're discussing this Um, in the midst of that. You know, the people who are not the only ones screaming loudly, but among those screaming loudest are municipalities. Yeah. Maybe, maybe those in the municipalities, they can continue to scream, but maybe solutions to speeding up development so that we don't have to go into the green belt would be something that could be tried. All I've heard, Scott, for the last, I don't know how many years, only in Hamilton, I'm sure it's elsewhere as well. All I have heard, is that it's impossible to get anything done in Hamilton. It's impossible to get through the bureaucracy. It's impossible to navigate the red tape. Well, okay, so if you're the municipality and you're screaming about how we can't use the green belt, but you've created a reputation of not being someone that is easy to work with, whose fault is that? And, you know, um, and, and I had someone on yesterday who's very fond of the green belt and, and you know, protected. And, and that's, that's fine. The, that's that, good. That, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. And and that's that's their position on it. But the green belt people will say, there's all this other land and, and they're not even developing it. They're sitting on it. Well, no, they're not sitting on it. The municipalities are sitting on it. Uh, it's not as if, you know, money can't be made here. It's just not a priority at this point. So, uh, again, it's it, it's like we're very selective in the facts that we choose to represent our side. And Scott, I go back to what we talked about a number of days ago about this and what I wrote about in the paper a while back. And that is... We keep saying we want to do all this intensification and building all this stuff. And yet it seems every time some developer comes up with a plan to build a tall condo tower that will solve some of yeah. our problems by putting in hundreds of units, 
Everybody in the neighborhood screams and yells and says, you're blocking the sun, you're creating traffic, you're creating this, you're doing that. And nothing then can happen because everything then has to get ground to a halt. We can't, we like anything else, you can't have everything you want in all ways. We either believe in intensification and we say, all right, if we're going to add 500,000 people to the country every year, and 230,000 in the next 30 years just here in Hamilton, we've got to do this. Or you come up with some other plan that will work, but it becomes tiring to me anyway to just hear the complaints but never hear any solutions. Uh, our guest also pointed out that 95, over 95% of the houses built in Canada are built by developers. So who else is going to build them? Government? Well, that, so it, it's amazing. What, what do we want? Do we want it's some amazing Soviet how we have apartment towers, like like lines <laughs> exactly. of just like gray like, buildings. I, I don't get why developers are public enemy number one. I don't get oh, but it. They are. Oh, but they are. Absolutely, they are. Yeah. And, and that's something else yeah. I wrote about a while back is we have to get over this turning developers into a four letter word. And once again, Scott. We either say we've got a problem and here are some solutions. They may not be the kind of solutions we love in, in its entirety, but if but I, don't, I haven't heard anybody come up with a perfect solution that satisfies everyone. And what we've done then is say, because the solution won't satisfy everyone, we don't do anything. And therefore, yeah. no one is satisfied. Somewhere along the I way, you. in the new year, maybe with the new council, if they've got some, you know, brass ones, uh, someone will start to make some decisions that will tell people, you know, if we're going to do this, some of you are not going to like it, but we listened to you when the 19,000 of you filed that petition uh, and represented the entire city and we blocked the green belt. We listened to you. So now we are going to tell you we're going to do this. And if you don't like it, well, then come and give us a better idea. But nobody has. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, as always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This is Steve. Ontario's chief medical officer hasn't learned much over the past couple of years from infectious disease. News bulletin. After each holiday, the number of infections went off the dial when families had their traditional get-togethers. How can he tell us that the seasonal flu has crested? Respectfully, hey Lucy, you got some explaining to do in January. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.